Shit Platypus Says, episode 29. So the election is coming election up. Election is coming. Election is coming. It's the countdown. The countdown is on. Finally. I just, yeah. We can move on with our lives. Not right now. I, I feel like anxieties are at peak. Yeah. Peak yeah. anxiety. Yeah. I think people are losing it now. Try and stay cool. Mm. Platypus is doing an election watch party. We'll put a, a link in the description. It will be via Zoom. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've been bombarded by all kinds of questions about Trump. But as of late, it, it has become about the black vote, right? Like that's that's been at the forefront of the last debate as well. Well, there's a uh, string of black celebrities that have been called out. I mean, this was goes back to Kanye West. And then, oh, 50 Cent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he was like, I'm not going to sign up for that tax plan under Sleepy Joe. I would become 20 Cent. <laughs> yeah. And then his white ex-girlfriend is like, oh, remember you're black and then maybe we can sleep together again. <laughs> that's, I feel like, a perfect example of what's going on in romantic relationships around the country. Like recently there was this article on how dominatrixes are getting people to vote. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I think Little Wayne was also recently in a photo op with uh with Trump supporting the criminal reform that Trump led and uh people were really up in arms about him. Yeah. Ice Cube was on this left podcast recently. The Bad Faith podcast. He's been doing the rounds. Ice Cube's been on The Breakfast Club. He's been on a podcast that's hosted by The Nation. Yeah, he's he's been in the news because he, along with a little team of experts, is just what he's calling them, has met with Jared Kushner and as well as Biden's people to present what he calls the contract with Black America. Is, yeah, uh, it's an abbreviated uh, document of something much larger that you can find on his website. It's a 13-point program. The main features of it are loans for Black people, and mm-hmm. uh, that are commensurate with the population of 13.4 percent of American Black people. Mm-hmm federal funding so that people can buy homes like he has this perspective that's about economic justice so he says that you know prison reform is necessary police reform is necessary and those are featured Mm. but the concern that he highlights in the interviews that he's given with people is economic justice well just to quote ice cube directly he said getting money into the hands of families that really need it it's not so it's not siphoned off into these programs i believe money trickles up we don't believe either candidate until they do something concrete yeah he was pushed on the breakfast club like they were asking him like well don't you think we need black schools and like black institutions and you know like black people doing it for themselves and he's like i don't think any of that can happen if there's this massive wealth inequality so the first thing you need to do is um, have restitution, economic restitution, and then you can talk about black communities doing it for themselves. He brought this up with both of both of the parties, and the Democrats, I think, were like, "Oh, we'll we'll discuss this after the election." Whereas the Republicans were like, "We're sending Jared Kushner to come and have a chat with you," and mm-hmm. and then Ice Cube has been like, "I don't support either party. I'm just seeing where I can best leverage my." pressure who's gonna serve me better or whatever and now he's been denounced as uh, a trump supporter mm-hmm. is the the t i guess yeah yeah 
that I think that there was this, you know, opportunistic presentation by Trump's people of presenting the meeting with Ice Cube as an endorsement of of Trump. For sure. Yeah. You know, something that he said in that podcast is that the Democrats for too long have taken the black vote for granted. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. And so when people throw it at him that um, like Trump is using the image of the meeting as somehow support, he's kind of like, yeah, but both parties do that, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and he says that again in The Breakfast Club. He's like, you know, like we're seeing all kinds of opportunism by both parties. And mm-hmm. so... Um, and and I think specifically with the black vote, I mean, it is the case. It's true that, you know, Biden uh, support from uh, South Carolina clinched his nomination and that there was an attempt to present him as Obama 2.0 and specifically that he was going to get black people again to vote for the Democrats. Like that is the running propaganda point well, if for you Biden. If you don't vote Democrats, you ain't black. black. (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know, that's that's the thing. And and so Cube, when he says, yes, the Democrats have been taking the black vote for granted. Yeah, well, he's explicit. He says um, it's about using the parties. Either party will use a celebrity as fast as you can blink. That the Democratic Party has to do something real. There's a demographic that's not going to be that's not going to go for any nice talking and smiles. You can see there's a snake in the grass. Are you with the Democrats? Just assuming that they'll they'll pull in this black vote. Uh, mm-hmm. We have to make sure that they do things for us, like in reality. Yeah, yeah, I think I think he was trying to be careful also because you know he's got a funny past too. You know, he as a member of the um, NWA. I don't know this. What story? What's the NWA? Uh, NWA is his group. Okay. It's niggas with attitude. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, that's the but nobody called them that. They called them NWA. There was a film about them. It's called Straight Out of Compton that came out maybe I don't know like in the last five years or something. But that past is like what people remember in a kind of in a kind of romantic light they're like yeah like fuck the police that's you know like that was an nwa song fuck the police mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people are chanting that in the streets right but the other side of it is that um he was also a part of or affiliated with nation of islam and if you start googling mm-hmm. like ice cube nation of islam these clips will come up i didn't know uh, this shit okay <laughs> Yeah. Uh-huh. The the oh yeah, there's some there's some funny stuff. There's some funny stuff. Um there's this kind of embrace of the Nation of Islam black power ideology. Malcolm X kind of shit. Farrakhan. Farrakhan. Yeah. Uh-huh. So like Cube was a supporter and still is. Like he still won't he'll be like, "Well, you know, I don't agree with everything he has to say, but he was trying mm-hmm. to set people straight and, you know, set them down the right path." Uh, so Louis Farrakhan, um, the leader of the Nation of Islam, he uh, he supported him. And at one point, like there's a clip where Ice Cube says, you know, like once I learned who the devil was, I would never want to be equal to them. Of course, the, uh-huh. devil, the devil being white people. Right. Which is what the Nation of Islam believed. Yeah. And he's gotten to some heat because there was a lot of anti-Semitism around the Nation of Islam. And so mm-hmm. part of like. Like the reason why Ice Cube has been in the in the public eyes because he tweeted a lot of like questionable memes that 
have this anti-Semitic bent. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so he's had to, like, on the one hand, fight off, like, these, like, claims that he's an anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, be, like, a supporter for, for black America. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's this back there's this backstory to Ice Cube that like he's this black power icon uh-huh. and therefore he's had to make it explicit that this document is not the return of black power. Yeah. So he tells people on the Nation podcast he's like, you know, this is not a black power thing. It's a black equality thing and that's different. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. Yeah, what struck me on the bad faith um, podcast that Ice Cube is on is they have this uh, academic who teaches at the New School. Um, his I think it's Derek Hamilton, and he's like a Biden advocate, and he has a bit of a a Black Panther on it. And Ice Cube is kind of pushing back against. I think the the Hamilton uh, Hamilton on the on the podcast is uh, he wants Biden um, and. And Ice Cube pushes back on this default position that Biden is like the left candidate for the academics. I don't know what that even means is a, is a deeper question. It was interesting in the Bad Faith podcast that uh, the the sort of DSA voice. Uh, yeah. I don't know if this person's a member of the DSA, but they they sounded, sounded like they it. were mm-hmm. they were presenting some of this kind of neo social democracy demands. That she she was sort of like you know I I just like want to push back on this whole um like black excellence thing because there's this question of the class division within american society and if you're not addressing that like how could we really get to these bigger changes that you want to see and cube just responds like you know i'm not about that like i'm not like these ideologies like they don't really speak to me i don't really think that they speak to black people and i think what speaks to black people is success and you know, I think that that's if you give them, if you empower them mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if they can have their businesses and then mm-hmm. that's that's how you lift everybody up. Um, it reminded me of how Donald Trump in the last debate said that success brings people together. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's that's like the message, you know, that um, the Democrats want to divide this into some kind of tribal warfare between mm-hmm. white people and black people. But the question is whether or not they can lift people up. Provide that's jobs. the ideology. Mm. Through jobs and employment. Through and jobs and employment. Myself. And obviously, like, that's... I'm not saying that these are promises that, um, that can be kept uh-huh. for um, marginalized communities that we're talking about. But that's that's the seductive part, you know, of, of Trump's approach. It's not... The, the divisions among the electorate that the Democrats have laid out as a way of managing the social discontent of neoliberalism yeah. is is exhausted. It's, and so yeah. Trump and Cube like agree that you should just appeal to people to the capacities that they can bring to the table to be successful. Yeah. It's also yeah. an attempt, it's an attempt by both parties to pull in the vote, whether it's through uniting people through the promise of jobs yeah. and personal betterment um, and the betterment of society um, or this divisive way. Pinning people against one another, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And the, the interesting part for me in the Bad Faith podcast was the, the academic and then Ice Cube. And the academic, again, this kind of like DSA figure, he's calling out Trump as a fascism after some kind of nice capitalism, which I don't know for him is the Democratic Party. Um, and at least Ice Cube is recognizing the discontent with people, discontent that's been uh, forming under Obama as well. 
I don't know. Whereas Biden, as uh, Obama's VP, is this kind of return. Yeah, the SNL had that clip of Obama. It's like, they just can't let it go. It was and a pretty cool clip when he slam dunked, and I was like, shit. But well, he didn't slam, did he slam dunk? No, you, he, no, he was like standing back. He was like on the other side of the court, and he threw yeah, the it was like a half court scaffolding, shot. and yeah. Yeah, yeah, like half court shot. He had a mask on, and he looks at the camera, pulls down his mask, he's like, that's how I do it, and then walks out. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, you know, like, is that what you think is going to happen to the election? All right. I mean, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden is a, he's not a spring chicken. <laughs> Biden couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never have dinner with the president. I never have dinner with the president. I never have dinner with the president. And when I see your ass again, I'll be hesitant. So we have two segments for you today. In the first, my co-host Pamela Nagales sits down with Platypus's chief pedagogue, Chris Crutrone, to discuss the ongoing crack-up of the neoliberal order and what another four years of Trump, or Biden, might mean for the left. If you were interested in what Trump has meant for the left, I would also highly recommend Ephraim Karlbach's article in the latest issue of the Platypus Review, Returning to Marxism in the Age of Trump in 2020 on the Platypus website, platypus1917.org. In the final segment of our podcast, I sit down with Platypus member Andreas Wintersberger, who's based in Vienna. We discuss the left's reaction to the migrant crisis. Andreas will be featuring on a regular basis as our EU correspondent. Let us know if there's anything left-related that you'd like us to address or report on, or you can send us an email too says at gmail.com or contact us via social media. We're says on Instagram and says on Twitter. Be sure to like and follow. Thanks. Hope you enjoy. I thought that we would chat a little bit about your articles on Trump and in general how Platypus has weathered the last four years of Trump and what we might expect after the election. I thought we'd get started by quoting some of your recent articles on Trump in your now infamous article for the Platypus Review, Why Not Trump, published in the lead up to the 2016 elections, you wrote, anti-Trumpism is the problem and obstacle not Trump. Two years later, in the 2018 article, Why I Wish Hillary Had Won, you wrote, for the purposes of the struggle for socialism I seek to pursue, I wish Hillary had won the election. All the anti-Trump protests going on is a distraction from the necessary work, and worse, Trump feeds discontent into the Democrats as the party of quote-unquote opposition. So now here we are, four years into the Trump presidency, before the presidential election, and I want to know what were your expectations for the left after the election of Donald Trump back in 2016? At the time, it seemed as if there was a kind of optimism that Trump would represent a change and that this change would maybe jolt or provoke, maybe shock 
people into thinking the world anew, but what has unfolded since 2016? What have been the effects of Trump on the left and how has Platypus coped with these changes? Well, I would say that uh, I didn't have much expectations with regard to the left. I thought that it would be a fracturing moment for the left. I thought that some people would fall in with extreme anti-Trumpism, whereas other people would be soft on Trump, especially because the various issues that divide the left would be exacerbated by Trump, namely a kind of anti-fascism versus anti-imperialism. So the anti-imperialist left would be soft on Trump and the anti-fascist left would be extremely Mm anti-Trump. So, uh, and I thought that there would be some rethinking that would be, that would go on. And there has been some, but generally speaking, it's been marginal. What, what would you say is that rethinking? Like, where do you find that? Well, Ted Tietze, like there are like a bunch of people who have, you know, used the opportunity to examine capitalist politics and historical tendencies, uh, the trajectory of things. Now, usually, though, in a a partisan way, meaning that Ted Tietze, you know, deals with what he calls Mm anti-politics, you know, the rejection of politics and, and really gets hung up on a variation of the idea of populism, which I don't think is particularly accurate with regard to Trump. Um, you know, obviously Boris Kogorlitsky, who we engaged in Platypus, mm-hmm. you know, there have been a number of, of figures on the left who have thought about things in light of Trump and also in light of Brexit, uh, but they've been few and far between and they've been marginalized. Mm-hmm. And in their own ways, they've, they've conceded to usual leftism. Uh, so, for instance, Kogorlitsky with his idea that I think is kind of spurious of financial versus productive capitalism, because mm-hmm. um, I don't think that that's a kind of a valid distinction, really. That Trump represents some kind of manufacturing capitalist against the financial capitalists. That's right. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, um, that's an old problem in Marxism going back to the 20th century uh, from the Stalinist era, from the Great Depression era. And I think it's a bad inheritance. Uh, that people have. So, you know, my task in terms of Trump was just to be ready for the possibility of him winning, Mm -hmm. meaning it wasn't really strategic with respect to Platypus or with respect to the left. It was rather, okay, how will people misunderstand this, misapprehend it, and also how will it be misrepresented, uh, specifically by the Democrats? and by their, you know, kind of similar uh, politicians uh, on the world stage, um, that he would be, you know, uh, denounced and opposed in particular ways that I thought would be misleading. You could already see that in the run-up to the election. Um, and that's, that has continued to be the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of the effects on the left um, by Trump, I think that one of the things that has come up it came up recently on the teaching on Marxism in the Age of Trump, led by Ephraim Karlbeck, that's going to be published in the next issue of the Platypus Review. It seems that the left, and by the left here I mean the Democratic Socialist of America, the, the Sandernistas, have doubled down on their nostalgia for kind of neo-social democratic politics and maybe have to sort of uh, acquiesce to being the quote-unquote liberal wing of the Democratic Party. How how does Platypus cope with this, or how do we deal with this degradation of the left um, in response to Trump? 
Right, so it's a kind of a two-step process that the left has undergone. One was to support Bernie Sanders in his run for the nomination of uh, the Democratic Party, both in 2016 and in 2020. And the other was uh, to oppose Trump once he was elected. So I think that there was very little expectation, either in 2016 or in 2020, of Bernie actually getting the nomination of the Democratic Party. And I think that there was an expectation in 2016 that Hillary would win, the DSA expected Hillary to win, and they expected to be a kind of loyal opposition within the Democratic Party under a Hillary presidency. And I think that that's what they're anticipating now with Biden, that they supported Bernie in the primaries, but they will uh, be the loyal opposition under a Biden administration. So they're certainly expecting Biden to win the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes back to the Great Recession, uh, the financial crisis of 2008, the calls for a new New Deal. And I think that, uh, you know, this is something of a, a, again, a misapprehension that was something that was offered by Obama and promised again by Bernie. And I think that really with Bernie, both in 2016 and in 2020, the aspiration was to get the Obama administration that we never had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's you know pretty transparent that the DSA, which is now you know the largest left organization in the United States and significant in, in terms of the world, so they, they have influence in terms of the world left, I think that uh, the DSA has, has made its gamble. And its gamble is to push for progressive liberalism, um, social democracy, social democratic welfare state in capitalism. And they call that socialism. And uh, they make some gestures sometimes, uh, rarely, few and far between, towards something more radical than that, by which they just keep, you know, the more leftist elements in their in their organization and in their milieu. Um, mm-hmm you know, part of their movement, if you will. So I think that it, it's a delayed reaction to the 2008 recession, both Trump's election and uh, Bernie's campaigns in 2016 and 2020 and the left support for the Bernie campaigns. So I wanted to talk about how you characterize the support for Bernie in your article, Sandernistas, The Final Triumph of the 1980s from the December 2015, January 2016 issue of the PR. You wrote that the Democratic Socialist of America embodied a kind of institutionalization of the new left in the 1980s. So the way that you put it was... Today, this recent historical process has been completely naturalized, the domesticated, televised version of the 1960s as historical curiosity. What needs to be reconciled today, by contrast with 2008, is not the 60s, but the 80s. Not the last hurrah of the former 60s radical weather underground terrorist Bill Ayers, who helped Obama get his political start as a generational bequest 40 years after the Chicago's Days of Rage. But the 1980s mayor of Burlington, Vermont, will be the specter haunting 2016. So could you talk more about how the 1980s political imagination persists today? What is the political revolution, as you wrote, that has been underway since the 1980s? And and what would 2016 be in this longer durée of political change? Okay, so uh, what's interesting to me is how someone like Bernie Sanders in the United States, uh, an independent, not a Democrat, but a successful politician nonetheless, a mayor of uh, in Burlington, Vermont, but also um, 
Uh, he entered Congress and, and has been a senator for a very long time now. Um, but also Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party in the UK is that these are politicians who were defined by their resistance to neoliberalism, but in fact, whose careers have been successful in the era of neoliberalism. So again, the kind of complicity involved in opposition. So both, uh, so Corbyn is a, is a phenomenon of the Thatcher era and Sanders is a phenomenon of the Reagan era. And so with Thatcher and Reagan, we have neoliberalism as a new consensus uh, by the two parties. Um, with some differences in emphasis, uh, but, but generally a consensus. That consensus was really revealed by Bill Clinton's election in 1992. So with respect to Trump, uh, Make America Great Again, most people think that Make America Great Again by Trump means go back to the 1950s or something. Go back to the pre-60s, the uh, pre-civil rights movement, so that's why he's accused of racism. Uh, pre-feminist, pre-second wave feminist, that's why he's accused of sexism, etc. Whereas I think that uh, Trump represents not a desire to go back to the 50s, to the pre-60s, but rather back to the 90s, when neoliberalism was very successful. And so Trump certainly had uh, opposition to neoliberalism in certain respects, especially with regard to trade, which is his number one issue. And he often says this, that he and Bernie agree on this. In other words, that both Trump and Bernie were opposed to NAFTA, to the North American Free Trade Agreement, and perhaps also they were both opposed to the uh, admitting uh, China into the World Trade Organization, the WTO. And of course, we know from the 90s, the left in the 90s was defined by anti-WTO and anti-NAFTA protest. Um, the, the cause celeb in the 1990s was the Mexican insurrection. In, the Chiapas. Yes, Chapas insurrection, right, exactly. And which was against NAFTA, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that, you know, again, what's interesting is that both Trump and Bernie represent Democratic Party opposition to neoliberalism. Uh, so again, Bernie was an independent, uh, but Trump was a Democrat. Trump was a Democrat. He broke with the Democratic Party over NAFTA, but was always in the orbit of the Democratic Party, for instance, supporting um, Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign. Um, so he was in the Reform Party, the Ross Perot Reform Party, and that party was defined by its opposition to NAFTA. And he left the Reform Party when it became taken over by the right wing under Pat Buchanan, became a kind of America first um, kind of white nationalist, supposedly white nationalist, allegedly white nationalist party. He left um, when, when it was taken over by those people. And I think that this is the, the hidden affinity. And again, you know, both, both Trump and Bernie are phenomena of the 1980s, meaning that's Trump's success era as a, as a capitalist. Uh, he's associated with the, with the 80s Reagan era as a, as a boom era for American capitalism, uh, maybe one that was not fully realized until the 90s under Clinton. But nonetheless, uh, that beginning to to bring ourselves out of the slog of the 1970s. Um, so, he, you know, Trump expresses admiration for Reagan, but he actually was a Democrat. And so he would be a kind of quintessential Reagan Democrat. And of course, that's 
the uh, the electoral support that he gets now too, which he sees himself in 2016 certainly, but also this time around as competing with Bernie for that electorate for the working class that's been left behind by neoliberalism. They both appeal to that same electorate. And I think that this is the source of the left's hysteria around Trump, is that they recognize their own affinity with Trumpism, but they can't admit it, mm. either consciously or, or explicitly. I'm trying to understand the way in which you talk about continuity and discontinuity with the new left mm -hmm. on the other side. So you've talked a lot about Trump, but with Bernie, mm -hmm. because there is this kind of nostalgia for uh, an, at least the aesthetics of the new left, if not the cultural politics of the new left that is behind Bernie. Um, so in what way does the Sanders support um, hold up this institutionalization of the 1960s, institutionalization of the new left through the 80s? Like, what's the symptom there with Sanders? Right. So, you know, there are two aspects of the new left moment. One is the, the actual new left and the counterculture, um, which exercised an influence, but was ultimately not successful. So it was defeated in 1968 by Nixon, and then it was sidetracked by neoliberalism later. But then there's the broader moment of the 60s, which is a transition to a new kind of capitalism. And in that respect, of course, the 60s were successful, meaning the civil rights movement was successful, second wave feminism was successful in affecting the new phase of capitalism that we've been living in for the last 50 years. So while Bernie might represent the new left that failed and the new left that has not yet been successful, but that still tries to be successful. Trump represents the new reality of capitalism after the 60s, meaning he doesn't think you have to be, you know, a feminist to support women in the workforce and women's equality. Right. So he's just he's like, look, we've done this already. You know, this is this is mm -hmm. a done deal. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, you know, uh, you know, and that's somewhat different, of course, from the 80s, from Reagan, because Reagan still represented a kind of, at least to the left, although maybe in substance not so much, an anti-60s backlash. And he was associated with uh, when he was governor of California in the 60s and also when he ran for president mm -hmm. prior to 1980, um, a kind of countervailing force against the influence of the new left. Um, but part of what made Reagan yeah. successful was that he bypassed a lot of that uh, by being a neoliberal in a way that he would not necessarily have been in the 60s, right? So originally he wouldn't have been a neoliberal, but, uh, but that's what he represents when he, when he comes to power in 1980. Um, so in terms of continuity and change, the, the term that I've used, which I know can be a little bit obscure, is post-neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. meaning not anti-neoliberalism, which would seek to undo neoliberalism and actually return us to the 60s to kind of reconnect with the 60s trajectory with a kind of McGovern 1972 or like a 1968 kind of trajectory that um, was not fulfilled, apparently, um, but rather moving on from neoliberalism. So in, in this respect, I think that the left's more confused about what's going on, meaning, you know, they want to bring back the New Deal, they want to bring back the Great Society, they're perhaps less clear about the Great Society, 
uh, you know, the LBJ 1960s reforms, or, you know, the, the Nixon reforms, which, which exist. Uh, Nixon built upon the Great Society programs and his presidency. Um, so they're a little bit less clear about that, so they, they tend to conflate all that with the New Deal going back to the 1930s. And that was helped by their experience of the Great Recession, which felt like the Great Depression and was quite different from the 60s. The 60s were not a depression era. So it was a boom era, in fact, that facilitated the reforms rather than a depression. So there's a lot of confusion there. Whereas I think that on the right, whether one is talking about Reagan or talking about Trump or going back further to Nixon, the idea is we simply build upon the reforms that have been made. In other words, we proceed in capitalism and, you know, Nixon didn't try to undo the New Deal or the Great Society programs. And even though neoliberalism is associated with trying to undo those things, they really don't. So the, Reagan doesn't do that. And it's not as if, you know, Trump is trying to undo uh, the last 50 years of, let alone, you know, 80 or 90 years of capitalism. He's not. Uh, he's simply moving on in a way that the left, I think, is more backward looking and less clear therefore, about um, the future trajectory of capitalism. And that's what I've tried to capture with post-neoliberalism. In other words, the opportunity of the crisis of neoliberalism to move forward rather than, oh, see, neoliberalism's been discredited, now we can try to undo it and go back, which is mm -hmm. what the left tries to do. So since you talked about this post-neoliberalism, I think also what was um, in the early writings was this possibility of a kind of shift in the horizon of politics. Um, recently, you did an interview where you said that, um, it, that there's a kind of changing character of the consensus. So how do we characterize this changing character of the consensus after Trump? And is there a kind of return to politics um, and what does that what does that mean? Um, I think that this is something that uh, Richard Rubin at the Teachin disagreed with. He said something like, uh, "I think that Trump represents the disintegration of politics, not the rebirth of politics against the technocracy." And this is why I feel deeply pessimistic. So he was sort of presenting your analysis of Trump as optimistic as that which could. Uh, prompt a return to politics and saying that he thinks that no it's it's a further disintegration okay so i would say that there's politics and there's politics meaning in general politics conventionally understood means elections and so a change in politics simply means a change in the electorate in the way the parties divide up the electorate so for instance with brexit and with boris johnson's recent election in the uk it was people who would normally vote for the Labour Party, who voted for Brexit, and who voted for Bar for the Tories and, and, and helped bring Boris Johnson to power. Um, so there's the swing vote, the idea of a swing vote. Again, I mentioned the Reagan Democrats. And I think that mm -hmm. beyond that, there's the question of, does the vote simply swing back and forth, or does the electorate actually shift over time? And so I think that, you know, in conventional capitalist politics, it's just a matter of getting votes. And so it's a matter of how they divide up the electorate. And that's a pretty thin definition of politics. But that's the one that we have to deal with because we're talking about capitalist politics. We're not talking about like reorganizing political parties um, as kind of grassroots movements. Neither Bernie nor Trump represented that. And certainly uh, Corbyn didn't represent that with labor in the UK. 
there were gestures in that direction, certainly by the left. The left thought that they might be a kind of grassroots movement for Bernie or for Corbyn, but they really have not been. The DSA is not really an activist movement kind of organization. It's, it's an electoral organization. Um, you know, they, they canvass. They canvassed for Bernie and they'll canvass for Biden and canvass for other Democrats, uh, so-called progressive Democrats. And so that's what I mean by that. And so we can't say that that's terribly significant, it, but it is significant in terms of capitalist politics. It is significant in terms of how the parties will divide up the electorate. And what that means is that already we're seeing with Biden, the Biden campaign, there is an attempt to win back the Trump voters. There is a competition for the electorate between Biden and Trump. Now, the terms of that competition are pretty weak and, and backward. So, in other words, rather than, okay, let's build on Trumpism, it's rather, let's put back together the Obama electoral coalition. Let's put back together the Democratic majority that Obama enjoyed. Now, when it comes to policy, so that's the difference between politics and policy, and again, politics in a socialist sense would mean something entirely different. It would mean organizing a new political party and it would mean civil social organizing that the Republicans and the Democrats don't really do. So in terms of policy, I think that there are some things that Trump has done that will not be undone by a Biden administration should Biden win. Namely, uh, Biden will not scrap the USMCA uh, trade agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and it also will not uh, there's no return to NAFTA. Yes, there's no return to NAFTA. And also the, the trade negotiations that the U.S. has conducted in East Asia with Japan, South Korea, and also China will not be undone. They may be modified, but they won't be undone. And also the trade uh, with, the, uh, EU, with the EU. Now, one thing that has not yet happened is a renegotiated trade with the U.K. now that Brexit is happening. Um, and so certainly Biden will handle that differently if he is elected than Trump would. Um, but since that's Trump's number one issue, I think it, it bears us, you know, looking at that and taking seriously the fact that some things that Trump has changed will simply not be reversed. And that those are substantial things that will affect the course of capitalist development for decades to come. So, Chris, will Trump win? I really don't know. Um, I think that uh, in 2016, my attitude was that he would win. Uh, but really, what I meant by that was he could win. But I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. And I think this time, um, he could win re-election. He could. That's different from saying he will win. Um, but if he wins, I won't be surprised. If he loses, I won't be surprised either. I mean, the interesting thing is that in 2016, if Trump had lost, I would not have exactly been surprised. Meaning, it would have made perfect sense to me that Hillary would have won against Trump. And it would make perfect sense to me now if Biden wins against Trump. But what's more challenging is if Trump wins. How do we understand that? And so that's why that's been my emphasis, is that can we really explain why Trump wins? Is it racist backlash, anti-immigrant, you know, uh, nationalism, xenophobia? Is it these things? Is it sexism? No. No. If Trump wins, why he won in 2016, and if he wins again now, it won't be for those reasons. 
one thing that we can say for sure is that win or lose, Trump's going to get more black votes and Latino votes this time than last time. He will get more this time than last time, whether he wins or loses. And so that whole narrative is just garbage. It's just self-serving Democratic Party nonsense that the left, of course, is just a hysteric version of. It's just the same, but just amped up. It's the same um, ideology, but, but exaggerated. Well, looking forward to some better analysis of Trump in the next four years, if he were to win. And uh, if not, uh, maybe the DSA will admit that it's just the left wing of the Democratic Party. Yep. And maybe that will be better for us as well. That's right. Yeah. Either way. Either way. Mm -hmm. Long live mm -hmm. platypus. Okay. Indeed. Thank you, Chris. All right. Bye. Great. Thanks, Pam. Bye. Take care, Pam. Did a crime bill, 1994, where you call them super predators, African Americans, super predators, and they've never forgotten it. They've never forgotten it, Jefferson. No, no, sir, it's his two minutes. So you did that, and you've called them worse than that. Up next is our new reoccurring segment with Plaspis member and Shit Plaspis Says correspondent, Andreas Wintersberger. For this episode, we discuss the left's response to the ongoing migrant crisis and the recent fires that have destroyed migrant camps in Greece. So I'm here with Andreas Wintersberger, uh, who's a Platypus member based in Vienna, who is our new EU correspondent. We'll be catching up with Andreas on a regular basis to discuss what's happening in the EU um, and what the left is up to and etc. Andres, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. I'm a Platypus member since about one and a half years. And the idea behind this uh, segment is to sort of look at current political events in Europe and how the left responds to them. And if we um, in Platypus assume that like the most important historic and political factors today are a product of the the attempt of the left to change the world, of the failed attempt uh, of the left to change the world. We have to look at the left's reaction to these historical events today and how this failed history actually represents itself or manifests itself in their reaction. So we try to make this palpable a bit. So you actually came to us wanting to talk about the topic of the EU's migration crisis. Um, and I have to be honest, this had gone under the radar a little bit in the UK with COVID and everything. It seemed like the left has stopped talking about this quite so much. But then you brought to my attention, uh, which is a big deal, that these big fires that had happened in Greek migrant camps, if you could expand on that what happened um on the 8th of september uh there uh was a fire that broke out in europe's largest um refugee camp which is located on the greek island lesbos and the refugee camp is called moria and that actually sparked a lot of discussion um not only between uh the member states the governments of the european union but also among the left especially in germany and austria but also of course in france and of course greece italy uh, the camp exists since about 2014. It serves as a hotspot, a so-called hotspot, 
since uh, the migration crisis of 2015. A hotspot basically means the idea is that, that you can create this camp to uh, swiftly identify, register and fingerprint incoming migrants. That means people who want to enter the European Union illegally. So they detained there because they have to wait until their asylum applications are uh, processed. By the time the fire broke out, beginning of September, there were about 12,700 people living uh, in the camp, which goes way beyond the original number that the camp was designed for. And you have different NGOs, like for example, uh, Doctors Without Borders, who actually call it the worst refugee camp on earth. So the, the controversy about, uh, around the fire itself, it is still not quite clear who started it, but uh, I can say at this point, maybe it doesn't even really matter. The point is that uh, it led to the fact that almost all of those people couldn't live in, in, in this camp anymore. And, you know, there were pictures going through the media of, of migrants sleeping on the streets, sleeping in graveyards. And, and then, of course, you have the corona situation, because I think the first cases of corona in the camp were detected in March, which actually uh, led to the fact that the camp was then sealed and nobody was allowed to, to leave it. And that fueled this horrible situation. I think this also coincides with attention within the EU more generally about what to do, what to do with the migrant crisis. And countries like Hungary and Poland were refusing to accept migrants. And I think more recently, in, in the matter of days, they've, they've come to a compromise where instead of accepting migrants, they are going to pay, like give money to other countries to help deal with the crisis. The narrative that sprung from, from those events was a controversy between, you know, member states actually saying that they want to take in a certain amount of refugees, ranging from 100 to maybe 1,000, and member states, the so-called hardliners, um, that completely refuse to take in any uh, migrants. And as you said, those are especially the so-called Visegrad states, which are Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic and Slovakia, and especially Austria, which is uh, also which also refuse to take in any refugees. And on the other hand, you have um, states like the Netherlands or Germany or France, who are negotiating, you know, how many refugees they want to take in. That was, I think, the initial reaction to that crisis. And then you also mentioned this new proposal. I think from 23rd of September, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, proposed the idea that, okay, uh, we won't have any legal or we won't create any legal obligation for different member states to actually take in refugees according to certain quotas which is actually the idea that the, the liberal left propose as the most humane and rational option. You know, the burden should be shared by all. But the proposal actually suggests that member states who are not willing to take in any migrants can help in facilitating their deportation. So they can uh, help financially or just with a, by other means, you know, pr providing personnel or infrastructure, etc. So how would you characterize the left's response to this? It was quite interesting. I mean, of course, there was like a, a huge uh, moral outrage. Like there were several uh, demonstrations in Vienna, but especially in, in Germany and other member states of the European Union. And interestingly, I think from what I read so far, most comments or reactions from the left, be it like communist parties or 
left fractions in the European Parliament is not that different. Most of them criticize, of course, the European Union for their for not being in accordance with their own uh, standards regarding human rights and so on, and that is an mm -hmm. absolutely uh, uh, unacceptable crime to treat people that way. And um, yeah, so it's basically, I, I think it's it has a lot of, it appears a lot like a liberal argument, right? Like based on, on human rights and, you know, human freedoms and um, the fact that this is not in accordance with legal standards, etc. But there is not a lot of, political strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is what I found so interesting. You know, you have the Chancellor of Austria, Sebastian Kurz, who is saying explicitly that he cannot allow in good faith to take in any refugees because he does not want to see the same scenes again as happened in 2015, right? In 2015, it was this big migration crisis. You saw hundreds and thousands of people marching basically uh, from Greece to Hungary and then on to Germany. And so there is the, the, the simple fact that by taking in uh, refugees or by sending any kind of positive message that people who enter the European Union irregularly have a chance to stay, that that is seen as a, a so-called uh, pull factor and leads to more people enter the European Union uh, illegally. I think that's the rationale behind it. We both had a look at a couple of PASPAS panels from pre the Trump election. One was hosted in 2017 and called Immigration and the Left, held in Houston. And then the other panel was held in Frankfurt, what is the European Union and should we be against it? What I got from these panels is the panelists kind of have this, they see it as a largely moral problem or that there needs to be worker-friendly immigration reform. Um, it kind of celebrates the the discontent of people protesting or showing a discontent, but there's no larger picture and there's certainly like no left to lead um, a discontent. It does a disservice to Marxism. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the interesting thing to me is that what, to my mind, the basic rationale of the EU's migration management is it comes down to a deterrent. It comes down to really... Um, creating uh, situations for people who enter the EU irregularly that are um, not sustainable, to actually get people to not come here. That's the point, right? And the answer, to my mind, is the so-called, in a sense, just to reverse, but the answer of the left is to reverse it on a moral order and just say, well, open borders, of course, refugees welcome, of course. But the, if you want to look at it from a, a real political political perspective, there is no sense of the political impotency the left today has. So by just saying, well, of course we are for open borders and of course every uh, worker who comes um, to the European Union who wants to live and work here should be granted citizenship immediately, you know, without having any political means to actually implement that, it will just lead to more people being detained uh, in, in camps. This is where, you know, this, this moral outrage really falls short of any, it, it really blocks any kind of attempt to realize politically what's actually going on. That's one thing I would say to the moral side of it. On the other side, you know, if you want to go back a bit and look at it a bit more from a utopian perspective, you cannot say open borders or refugees welcome without international solidarity of a real existing political force 
for the left, mm -hmm. because otherwise it would, you know, there's no point to it. There's no. Um... The migrant crisis itself expresses expresses a crisis of labour as as value. The fact that these people would seek seek a better life and employment in in another country. The left seems to want want the state to kind of hand out provisions to the migrants um, in various ways, rather than recognizing the state as as Marx did as a crisis of bourgeois society. Exactly, and and I think that's you know that that leads to the bigger question, right? Because it it's not just about migrants coming to Europe. It's I think a crisis of of the EU in general. So the actual question for the left, in my mind, should be not how many migrants should member states take or anything like that, but more like, okay, what is the European Union actually and why should we be against it? That's, I think, to my mind, is the only way how, how one can address a sort of deeper crisis that really took hold after the financial crisis of 2008 and how different member states tried to, to basically regulate Greece's economy, so all, all that that was that was going on there, that was already part of, of this, this deeper division of political power between member states, that the EU is basically just sitting above and trying to regulate. That there was not and there is not like a coherent response from different left groups. That's you know part of the bigger problem. I mean, another thing is when you look at the history of the left within the last ten years, for example, you have a lot of new social movements, right? That generally do not want to be associated with like historical terms for the left. You know, also in terms of the organizational structure. You know, I'm talking like uh, Syriza, Podemos, or in Germany, Blockupy, um, and those kind of things. And the thing is, like during 2015, during the migration crisis. All those those new left movements gained actually a lot of, of civil society support for helping refugees, and they got a lot of boost from that. And interestingly, mm -hmm. we can see that Podemos in Spain, Podemos is now in a coalition with the Social Democrats there and is actually, you know, refusing to take in any, any uh, refugees. Similarly, in Austria, we have a government between the Conservatives and the Greens, also, they have, the Greens have no political uh, leverage whatsoever to get their uh, coalition partner to take in any refugees. And Syriza was voted out of the government in 2019. So, um, you know, when you, when you look at how these new, social, uh, these new left social movements were sort of like a response to the bigger crisis of the European Union, mm -hmm. we can see that a lot of it actually has gone nowhere. Mm -hmm. They end up tailing the status quo. Yeah, yeah. Well, they always were tailing the status quo. Yeah. But... It opens up a lot of questions for the left, right? Like this, this thing, the European Union. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like not not a, a, a very clear and forward issue, I think, for a lot of left groups, because there is one aspect may may be you know the question of national or international organization. I mean, for example, you have the so-called the European United Left, Nordic Green Left, which is the left fraction of the European Parliament and consists of, you know, national parties like uh, Die Linke in Germany. And so they basically, their reaction now to, to Moria is that they want to abolish the Dublin system. Okay, so what's the Dublin system? In short, the Dublin system says it was, it originated actually in the 1990s. According to its latest version, it states that every the member state in which the migrant first applies for asylum has to process the asylum application, 
which in reality means that, of course, countries like Greece or, or Italy or Spain are the most affected by illegal migration because usually migrants from the Middle East or from Syria do not travel by plane but use smugglers carrying them across the Mediterranean Sea. So um, basically mm -hmm. this system in itself is, is already, you know, flawed when it comes to real political problems of migration. And to come back what I what I originally said, um, there you have, you know, this left, seemingly left fraction within the European Parliament um, arguing for the abolishment of the Dublin system with seemingly until today no political force, no political leverage whatsoever to actually get that done. Besides the fact, and that's the next point, the EU is structured in a way that the Commission, of which I talked about before already, is the only legal body that is capable of introducing legislation. So it is not the case that the European Parliament can initiate legislation. It has, of course, you know, agree with the proposals of the Commission. But, you know, that's, that's another thing, you know, where leftists usually argue that there is a democracy deficit within the European Union because publicly elected members of the Parliament are actually not able to initiate legislation. In the end, you can say that the actual power still lies with the European Council and the European Council consists of the heads of government of the member states. So that means it is not the, the power, you know, of the European Union to actually implement legislation like a nation state is very, very limited. It's still, you know, the heads of the governments of the actual member states that have politically uh, speaking the most influence in power. That poses a lot of problem of how to organize for a left. Because on the one hand, you have this nationalism that actually still consists within the EU also um, is, you know, reflecting in the way how the left tries to influence the, the European Union. And that actually prevents them from any kind of real, uh, quote unquote, international or let's rather say cosmopolitan um, left organization. Mm. Mm. Interestingly, I was I was visiting Pan in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, and we went to the Berlin Biennale, which is an art event in Berlin. Um, and every single piece of work, and I'm not kidding you, was about um, true ethnic roots or true oh, wow. people exploring mm. their true community, this kind of thing. Mm. And this is obviously people are upset about Trump, um, uh, but it also coincides with the whole migrant crisis too. I don't know. I'm just saying, you know, the Nazis were all about this true German heritage too. But um, Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, That's... But if any, if if any, you know, meaningful, meaningful way of of, I don't know, I don't want to sound too esoteric on that, but if any meaningful way of actual finding a new social identity is blocked or constantly botched of a society or of the society we live in, I mean, maybe that that just leads you with the fact that you have to <laughs> recognize your roots and recognize the social uh, sphere that you came from or you think you came from as the only thing that really you know gives you any sort of meaning in in this world and i think that's a very very sad and um pessimistic way of of thinking about society and what it could be you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of course racism is you know one of the driving driving motives or is presented as one of the driving motives behind um the eu migration management right that it stems from this kind of um, 
racist attitudes toward barbaric foreigners or whatever. And that also, I think, fundamentally misses the point because, and I think that is something that uh, is a fact in, to my mind today, that um, mass migration actually poses a huge amount of not just the political, but social difficulties for, for nation states to take in huge amounts of people that usually are not very well educated in that sense, for the most part, um, creates huge problems for not just the working class, but for, uh, I don't know, the idea of, of, you know, quote, integration itself. And I think one of the columnists of The, the Economist commented that uh, forced compassion leads to misery. I think that kind of, you know, hits, hits uh, the spot when it comes to an unreflective use of, you know, uh, the word racism or, or, I don't know, you know, moral outrage uh, that member states mm -hmm. refuse to take in any, any, any number of refugees. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining us, Andreas. Well, thanks for having me and um, I hope we can continue this and see what we will bring on the next time. been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. The link to the current issue is in the episode description. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of The Platypus Reviews and our panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Boring.